Hi, everyone. Drew Perot here on the Broken Brain Podcast. I came across a book a couple months ago that completely blew my mind and opened up my heart. While I was reading it, I laughed, I cried, and my whole understanding of brain health became even wider after coming across it. The book is called Into the Magic Shop, a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. And I'm excited to say that we have the author of the book on the podcast here today with us, Dr. James Doty, who's a neurosurgeon and a professor in the Department of Neurosurgery at Stanford University. He is a researcher, he's a scientist, he's a physician, and most importantly, he's lived an incredible life. You see, when Dr. Doty was a young man, born in poverty to parents who had extreme addictions and one parent who was suicidal, he came across a mentor who completely changed his life. And he found this mentor in a magic shop. And this is the basis of his book. And his book incorporates the lessons that he learned from this mentor in his life. And we're going to talk about all that on the podcast today. My hope is after listening to the podcast today and getting excited about the connections between the brain and the heart, you'll be inspired to pick up the book. It's truly, truly, truly worth the read. Okay. Now on to my formal introduction for Dr. James Doty. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perowitt. Today's guest is author, inventor, entrepreneur, and philanthropist, Dr. James Doty. Dr. Doty is a professor in the Department of Neurosurgery at Stanford University School of Medicine. He is also the founder and director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University, of which His Holiness the Dalai Lama is the founding benefactor. Dr. Doty works with scientists from a number of disciplines examining neural basis for compassion and altruism at the center. Dr. Doty is also the New York Times bestselling author of Into the Magic Shop, a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. The book has now been translated into almost 40 languages around the world. Dr. Doty has an audio program coming out. If you've read the book or you're inspired to read the book after this interview, stay tuned to the audio program, which sounds true, titled Lessons from the Magic Shop, which comes out on January 8th. Dr. Doty, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. It's an honor to have you here. Well, it's uh, really a pleasure to be with you, and thank you for inviting me. When you were 12 years old, you walked into a magic shop and met an extraordinary woman named Ruth who introduced you to a series of teachings that changed the trajectory of your life. I couldn't think of a better way to start this podcast than jumping into one of those teachings. You call them tricks in your book. And I was hoping you might kick us off with taking us through Ruth's trick number one as an experiential way to start off uh, the interview. Would you mind that? So just a brief bit of background. Uh, at the age of 12, uh, I was struggling. I had come from a very difficult childhood, uh, a father who was an alcoholic and a mother who had had a stroke, was partially paralyzed, chronically depressed, attempted suicide multiple times. We were on public assistance. Neither of my parents had gone to college. And I was lost. Uh, I didn't see a future for myself by that point. I was becoming a delinquent. And I had no mentors. I had no money. And I felt I had no future. And at 
this point, uh, this critical juncture, I walked into a magic shop because I had an interest in magic and I'd never been to this uh, magic shop before. It was a little ways away from my house. And I walked in and there was this woman sitting there and I describe her. I think you have to be over the age of 50 to appreciate this term, but I describe her as an earth mother. Here was this lady. Uh, she was wearing a muumuu. I don't think anyone wears those anymore. Uh, and she had this flowing gray hair. And she was reading a paperback book. And she had these glasses perched on her nose with a chain on them. And she looked up. The bell rang when I opened the door at me with this radiant smile. And I asked her uh, about some of the uh, magic uh, tricks that were in the shop. And she smiled and she said, well, I'm just babysitting the store while my son, who's the store owner, is running an errand. And this led to us engaging in a conversation. And uh, she actually asked some very deep, penetrating questions. And a child in my circumstance, uh, I think, would typically be reluctant to answer questions about your background, et cetera, because, frankly, I was ashamed. But with her, I felt safe. And... I think probably in this podcast, we'll talk about this term of psychological safety. And she made me feel safe and that it was okay to be who I was and to tell her about myself. And I did. And after about 15 or 20 minutes, she said, you know, I'm here for another six weeks. And I think I could teach you something that uh, could really help you and uh, maybe even change your life. And uh, to be honest, I had no insight. And in fact, the reason I agreed to, if you will, come back and engage with her was because she was so kind and she was giving me Chips Ahoy chocolate chip cookies as we were talking. And uh, this led to us spending about an hour and a half or two hours every day for the next six weeks. And in the book, this is where I talk about these uh, four tricks or lessons that she taught me. And the first thing that she taught me was to relax my body. And what I mean by that is that what I did not appreciate at that time was that because of my own background, and we now use the term adverse childhood experiences, which is when a child grows up in poverty uh, with a chaotic uh, life, in a background of alcohol or drug abuse, mental illness, physical abuse, sexual abuse, etc., what happens is that it's a form of trauma, and it then plays out as post-traumatic stress disorder. And individuals who come from the, those backgrounds oftentimes never know what's going to happen next. And this not knowing and feeling of having no control does something that is very negative in regard to our body and our mental health. And what happens is that this part of our nervous system called the autonomic nervous system, which has two parts, which I think most people listening are aware of. The first part or one part is the uh, sympathetic nervous system. And this is what is commonly termed the flight, fight, or freeze response. And this is what happens uh, when you are concerned about or fearful of what might happen in a circumstance. 
and this response uh, has a huge, huge effect on your physiology. There's the release of catecholamines, which cause your heart rate to increase, your uh, peripheral vascular system to contract and blood to be shifted uh, to your musculature so you could run, your pupils dilate, your sphincters tighten. And this, uh, if you look uh, back on our evolution as a species, allowed us to survive on the savanna in Africa when we felt a threat, let's say, from uh, an animal, a lion. As a result, many people from the type of background I came from and I described have that system chronically engaged. They're always fearful. They can't relax. Their muscles are always tense. They can't attend because they're always looking around. The other side of that system, the autonomic nervous system, is the parasympathetic nervous system, which is commonly called the rest and digest system. When you're in this mode, you are relaxed, you're open, you're inclusive, you're heart rate is decreased, your blood pressure is decreased. These negative physiologic effects, as example, the release of catecholamines, that's not happening. The release of stress hormones markedly decreased. The release of or creation of inflammatory proteins markedly diminishes. And inflammatory proteins are what are associated with a lot of chronic diseases and the severity of diseases. So in That situation is how I walked into this magic shop and began this experience with this woman. I was stressed. I was fearful. I didn't know what was going to happen next. I was tense all the time. I couldn't attend. And this woman, whose name was Ruth, intuitively understood this. And so when she started with me in the back room of this magic shop almost, wow, five decades ago, is... She taught me a technique which is now called a body survey, but remember at that time there was no such thing as mindfulness or meditation that was talked about very much, if at all, in the West, or neuroplasticity. So what she taught me was to simply sit and then focus initially on my feet, my toes, my legs, and with intention think about relaxing those parts of my body. And I didn't realize actually how tense I was at that time. So she would have me sit and close my eyes and do this exercise. And then she would have me start breathing and take closing my eyes and then taking three breaths in and through my nose and slowly releasing them through my mouth until I felt comfortable doing that. And as I began that exercise, that breathing exercise, that relaxing, it really started to have a profound effect because after a period of time, I realized how tense I was. And what it allowed me to do was to then be able to attend and focus. Because what happened was that one thing I realized that there was a negative dialogue that was going on in my head, which I thought was me. And this exercise allowed that dialogue to just pass me by without me connecting to it. Normally what would happen is that something negative would come by and I would attach to it and then I would be distracted by it. And 
this technique she taught me ultimately allowed that distraction not to occur. Now, don't get me wrong, it took a while for that to happen. And then by letting that aspect go, I was able to attend and focus. And you cannot learn, you cannot progress unless you can attend. And that really was the first lesson that she taught me. I'm thinking about that lesson that you learned from Ruth and how profound it is. And I'm also thinking about the time of year that it is and people setting goals for the year and things that they want to give love and attention to. And I often think about these goals that many people are setting, many people who are listening to this podcast, whether they want to improve their health or their relationships or other areas. But it's almost like the lesson you learn from Ruth is the underlining mechanism that allows you to focus and give love and attention to your goals, which is, can you put yourself in a place where you can be present? Can you be present to what you're actually doing and not get distracted? In fact, in your book, you talk about this passage when you first met Ruth and um, why she was asking you about magic and why does, you know, why do you think magic works? And uh, would you mind just sharing a little bit about that and, and uh, your fascination with magic and what she was telling you on her thoughts of why magic works? Well, I'd always had a fascination uh, with magic as a child, and, and it was actually because of my father. He had given me a, a sort of a, a gift of some magic tricks when I was younger, and I always felt that was my uh, connection to him. And so, uh, you know, what happens with magic is that people perceive it as, if you will, an illusion, but it's really a distraction. And uh, what the magician is trying to do is to distract you from what they're actually doing. And it's interesting, though, because uh, a really good magician has you believe what he is doing is real and and not an illusion. And that's when you feel he's really a magician. And this idea of really being present is this idea, if you will, of understanding what magic really is, if that makes sense. It makes absolute sense. And I think that uh, to be present and distraction free or to catch herself in distraction because there's so many things that we want to achieve in life. There's so many things that we want to give love and attention to, but it's often an associative question would be not just what do I want to focus on, but how can I remove distractions in my life? And here you're getting this important lesson. I want to come back to your story and Ruth and the lessons that you learn from her and the work that you do but I want to take a little bit of a tangent as I often do in these podcasts, as I was reading about your story and the lessons and how challenging your childhood was with the hardships of living below the poverty line, your, your father's alcoholism, uh, your mom, mother being suicidal and suffering from clinical depression. I think of so many youth and kids today that are, that are going through those same, same circumstances. And I couldn't help but to think about school and there's a lot of educators and teachers and parents that listen to this podcast here. If you could wave a magic wand and bring in some version of curriculum into the modern day uh, school system based on your experiences growing up, um, 
what would you bring into school that doesn't exist right now? Well, let me just back up slightly and then I'll answer the question and I think you'll see why. As a species, there are a couple things that are unique to us and um, and people think that evolution is a process that heads towards perfection and it's not. What it does is it allows you to survive in your particular environment. And in fact, there's a book called Brain Bugs that shows that while certain aspects of our evolution allowed us to survive, many of them are not helpful in our present lives. And what happens for many is that, you know, when you're safe, you feel comfortable, you're not at risk uh, of life or limb, if you will. In a hostile environment, though, you have to be aware of everything that's going on. And for that reason, negative events have a tendency to stick with you. And that's why so many people focus on negative uh, events. And it leads to negative self-talk. The other aspect is that you cannot expect a child to attend and learn if he's hungry, if uh, he can't concentrate, if there's uh, violence in his uh, home, and all of the other issues I talked about. But what we do know is that uh, simply by the exercise I was describing and the others, which I'll share with you in a little bit, is that children, even as young as five or six, who are from challenging backgrounds, if you can teach them how to regulate their emotions, and this is done through these types of exercises, when they can regulate their emotions, when they don't fly off the handle, where they can take a moment to pause between a stimulus that may trigger a negative feeling, then that allows them to attend, to be present. And we know from a variety of studies at this point, although a lot of work still needs to be done, but we do know that when children are taught uh, emotion regulation, what we now term social-emotional learning, these mental training practices, that uh, as a result, uh, bullying decreases, Children uh, improve their academic performance. They uh, are more interactive, more respectful. Attendance increases. And so there are a variety of positive effects from these types of practices that not only occur with adults, but occur with children when they are taught them. And so what it shows you is that Oftentimes, people go through life thinking that they have no control, that they're just blowing in the wind, and they don't appreciate that within themselves, one is this immense, immense power that they have within themselves, that oftentimes they have given that power to other people as a result of negative self-talk or not believing in themselves or having a negative self-image, and 
they don't know how, no one has taught them how to control that uh, negative self-talk and release the power within themselves to achieve anything they want to achieve. And this is the extraordinary thing that we have within us, uh, is this ability to change our perception, to change or reframe how we see the world. And all of those are within our grasp. Oftentimes, it just takes someone to give them the lock to unlock the door to see the possibilities that they may not see at this time. And in your case, during this this time in your uh, story, during these six weeks, did you feel did you feel like you were in two worlds? That you were in this world of this woman was creating for you and teaching these lessons, and then would you come home and and how are you handling it at the time? Well, it was strange, right? I mean, on the one hand, I, this woman is teaching me these mental practices, which are completely foreign to me and actually pretty much probably everyone around me. But the extraordinary thing is that a couple of things happened. And we can talk about Ruth's trick number two, if you want, which please actually intersects here. It's this idea of taming the mind, as I describe it. So the first is, if you will, relaxing the body through intentionally, intentionally breathing and relaxing. And then the next part is, I mentioned this uh, negative dialogue that happens so frequently with so many of us, where we are self-critical, where we criticize. In fact, oftentimes, we're more critical of ourselves than anyone else around us. Yeah, many people say that we talk to ourselves in a way that we would never talk to a best friend. Exactly. And it's due to what I mentioned earlier about how negativity sticks to us. And the thing is that when you have that negative self-perception, many of us believe that that negative dialogue is actually us and it's truth. And when you realize that, first of all, it's an artificial construct, that dialogue, it has nothing to do with you per se, and that it is generated oftentimes by this negative environment. When you're able to understand that, and understand that when you're hypercritical to yourself, it's hard for you to not look at others in a judgmental way and push that negativity on them. And what I found happened was that when she made me understand that this negative dialogue was not beneficial, it was as if these negative statements were building bricks that were creating a prison for myself. And that each time I had these negative feelings, it was as if I was adding a brick to a wall that was surrounding me and that was becoming dark. And it created more despair and feeling of hopelessness. When she made me realize it was an artificial construct and that it was within my power, if you will, to change those negative comments, and I use the analogy of listening to a radio station, when she allowed me uh, or taught me that I had the ability to change the channel from one of negativity to positivity, it really changed everything. Because before, and you probably appreciate this, if you say, I can't, 
or it's not possible, by definition, it isn't. You were self-limiting. And when I took those words out of my vocabulary, when I felt truly that I was worth receiving love and that I was a good person and that I deserved to be cared for and to be loved and to be nurtured, it changed everything. So it changed my perception of being hypercritical, not only with myself, but with others in the outside world. It allowed me to reframe my situation as an example. You know, I used to have a lot of anger and hostility towards my parents. But after this period with Ruth, what happened was I realized that they had their own struggles and that they did not have the tools or resources to positively deal with their own situation. And their interaction with me, their interaction with the world, it wasn't about me. And because of that, because of that change in perception, it allowed me not to be angry or hostile towards them. And also it allowed me to forgive them. What I didn't appreciate initially was that as a species, we have this unique ability to intuit people's emotional states from their facial expressions, from their body habitus, even from smells. And when you walk in the world with anger, hostility, people respond to that, even at an unconscious level. And uh, this was what was happening to me. I felt the world was against me. It was hostile, that I had no future, that everything uh, seemingly would never go my way. But what happened was that when I reframed things, when I changed my perception and was open and felt good about myself, it changed how uh, people reacted to me. And so what I tell people is that when I changed how I responded to the world, the world changed how it responded to me. And uh, that is when I took control of the power that I had within me and recognized that it was a power that I had that I could control and use to improve myself, but also to improve the lives of others around me. And to pick up off that and go back to like the, the first part of the question, if you would imagine that being translated into the modern school system today, have you thought about that at all or just anything that you would be willing to share with us here? Well, I think that one of the diff most difficult things um, for everyone, even teachers, is to be judgmental, to make assumptions about people based on their appearance or how they may act, not understanding their backgrounds or the suffering they're going through. Oftentimes we focus on our own suffering and don't appreciate uh, what others are going through. I'll give you a real quick example here. I had a colleague come to me and it was an individual I've worked with for a few years, but in our meeting, he became very hostile. And my normal, or I think a normal reaction when somebody comes on towards you in an aggressive fashion is to respond aggressively because, you know, I'm making an assumption it's unjustified and somehow it's about me. And instead of doing that, uh, I sat back and, and asked myself, this is unusual. Why would this person be doing this? And actually, I confronted him with this. 
and um, he burst into tears, which, mm. you know, where, how do you go <laughs> this response of aggressiveness to suddenly just burst into tears? I mean, it seemed so discordant. And it turned out that what had happened was he had uh, lost his job and he had um, not signed up for this COBRA insurance that would continue his insurance on after his termination because he was fairly young. Nominally, everyone was healthy. And he actually had just found out that his wife had breast cancer. Wow. So the issue had nothing to do with me, right? His response was a reaction to his own pain and fear, right? So many times uh, we respond to things that we think are about us. The other side of the coin is we make judgments about people and do actions towards others based on these assumptions. You know, if you have a child who's angry and upset, uh, understanding that they may not have eaten, that there may have been some incident that occurred at home, and showing love instead of uh, punishing them for their outburst, uh, that's one way. Uh, again, I think when we talk about how these practices can benefit uh, children, uh, these practices can profoundly benefit teachers mm. because uh, they're in challenging environments. They oftentimes don't have enough resources. They're overworked. They're stressed. And they have some children who have emotional regulation issues. And it's, it's very, very difficult. You know, these types of techniques can certainly improve things. But if you have a underfunded bad system to begin with, they can only do so much. So while I think uh, these types of practices are wonderful in regard to the educational system, uh, this is a much larger discussion about who we are as a country in terms of valuing uh, the work of educators and paying them a uh, reasonable wage. If you look at Finland as an example or other countries who respect education, the teachers are respected and they're paid appropriately. And it even gets into a bigger question of uh, poverty and uh, social inequality. And uh, what is the source of so many problems uh, in a child's life? You know, if you have uh, poverty and uh, unemployment that can only create tension in a child's life between their parents. And, and so there's a much broader question here about who we see ourselves and are we a compassionate society or are we a society that judges people who uh, are struggling as somehow it's their own fault. And that perhaps is a question that uh, we could have, uh, or discussion we could have in another podcast. Hmm. You know, you talked about compassion and just this need of compassion, being able to transform things and change the perspective. And when we have it, 
we can step into what this person is really going through. Even if we don't know the answer, we can already start off the conversation and understand that this person's going through something. Nobody wakes up one day and just decides that I'm going to be aggressive towards other people. It's not how the human mind is built unless if there's a, you know, a genuine you know, uh, imbalance or, or psychosis that somebody's uh, dealing with. But we can't really understand compassion without first starting with the heart. And that's covered in the third major lesson that's learned. I want to start off big picture. You know, in this podcast, we talk about the surprising connection between the brain and different parts of our body. I would love for you to talk about the heart, uh, your, your entire life. You've been on this lifelong quest to understand the relationship between the brain and the heart and heart and compassion and what we can learn from it. So just big picture, help us understand the heart and and what people on this podcast could learn from the experiences you've had. And then we'll talk about Ruth and the lessons that she brought to the table. Sure. I mentioned earlier uh, the autonomic nervous system. And this is a, it's called autonomic in the sense that it actually functions without our conscious input, although we can consciously affect it, as we have learned. And as I've mentioned, the distribution of the autonomic nervous system actually is throughout the body. Uh, it's into the gut, the kidneys, the major organs, and it's especially predominant in the heart. And it is not a one-way highway from the brainstem where it originates to the end organ, but it's actually a two-way uh, highway. And what I mean by that is that your brain can affect these different organs, but in fact, the organs can affect your brain. And there is an ever-increasing amount of research that demonstrates this. And we know, as an example, even um, in the context of ancient societies, that they understood this connection when we didn't. As an example, uh, when research was first being done, on uh, meditation, if you will, and compassion, a group of researchers were studying Tibetan monks because they have a very well uh, thought out uh, meditation practice, if you will. And what the neuroscientists uh, were interested in, uh, seemingly to quote unquote measure comp compassion, was to do electroencephalograms or EEGs, where you would put all these electrodes on the uh, scalp and then record the brain waves. And they were telling these Tibetan monks about how they were going to study compassion with this technique, and they all started laughing. And the reason they were laughing and <laughs> they were queried was because clearly the scientists didn't know what they were talking about because compassion is in the heart, not the brain. Right. The reality is that this is shown in some ways to be true in the sense that we know that uh, when you are practicing compassion with intention, and what I mean by that is you're thoughtfully aware of the suffering of others and have this motivational desire to alleviate that suffering, which is the definition that scientists use for compassion, is that in fact, your heart changes its rhythm 
And there's something uh, called heart rate variability. And I've recently written a review article about this in the context of heart rate variability and compassion. And what happens is that the interbeat variability in someone who is practicing compassion actually increases compared to someone whose sympathetic nervous system is engaged. And one of the greatest causes of sudden cardiac death is a lack of heart rate variability. And what that means is that two people could have a heart rate of 60, let's say, but one could be profoundly stressed and the other uh, not stressed at all. But the difference is that the timing between each beat is variable in the person who is relaxed and calm and actually is consistent in the person who is stressed. And that is associated with an increased uh, release of uh, uh, certain neurotransmitters that have a very negative physiologic effect on the long term. And then uh, there's something that's called... uh, broken heart syndrome. And uh, yes. this phenomena of people who've uh, profoundly affected by a breakup or their heart's been broken uh, and their heart just stops beating. And, uh, uh, and they don't have any evidence of uh, atherosclerotic uh, cardiac disease, uh, what's typically associated with heart attacks. Uh, it just stops. And it shows you the profound effect that uh, this two-way highway can have in both directions. Uh, And we also, of course, know that, and I know uh, Dr. Hyman is uh, very interested in this topic, it's the microbiome in your gut, how our diet affects our emotional state. All of these things are interconnected. And while they occur often at a subconscious level, what we know now is that within us is the ability to actually have some degree of control of these things through the practices I mentioned earlier, uh, through changing our diet, et cetera, we can have a profound, profound effect on how our brain responds to different events and subsequently how our brain has an impact on our own peripheral physiology. Now you've said in your book that opening your heart was one of the hardest lessons to tell us about what you learned from Ruth and how that plays into that key lesson, and and why was it so hard for you? Why was it the hardest lesson? We were talking earlier about being self-judgmental or hypercritical, and I had indicated that this then shades how we look at other people, because when we're hard on ourselves, oftentimes we're hard on others. But the other aspect is that how you're emotional state, how your body language, how your facial expressions affect others. And when you're able to open your heart, which means having an accepting, inclusive, caring attitude toward
towards those around you has therefore an effect on how they interact with you. And I think a simple analogy, and actually I think a very appropriate one now, is in corporate America. I'm sure you have had bosses or individuals, they call a meeting and they walk into a room. You can tell by their body language, they're stiff, they don't have, they have a scowl on their face. And these types of people are frequently judgmental, hypercritical. And when you're sitting in a room with people like that, how do you feel? Your sympathetic nervous system is stimulated. This flight, fight, or freeze response is engaged. You're releasing various neurotransmitters that increase your blood pressure, increase your heart rate. You're anxious. And of course, we know in those states, it's very negative uh, on your physiology, especially in the long term. And you don't want to be there. And versus a person who walks into the room, greets each individual by name, asks maybe a personal question about their lives, thanks them for being part of the team, because them being part of the team has led to your success and that you want to hear from them and that uh, you're appreciative, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In that state, people are calm. They, feel, they don't feel threatened. I mentioned the term psychological safety. They feel safe in that environment, and uh, their physiology is working at its best. Interestingly enough, uh, you may know uh, the company Google. Uh, when they first started, they had a belief that the best employees were the ones who went to uh, basically the top 15 universities in the world and were in the top 5% of their class. And that those characteristics uh, were the primary ones associated with any type of significant success. And as they acquired more companies, as they got larger, they had uh, employees and uh, people in leadership positions who did not have any of those characteristics. And what's fascinating is after doing all these analytics and spending tens of millions of dollars, it turns out that where you went to school and your grade point average had zero correlation with success or leadership. And the most important characteristics were creating an environment of psychological safety and authenticity. Mm. And it didn't even have as much to do with domain expertise. But those characteristics of being authentic, creating an environment of psychological safety, were the key ones to success. And the reality is that those characteristics, not only in the corporate environment, are critically important, they're critically important in just living your life. So profound. And it basically upends this model. You know, there's a, a well-known author, Seth Godin, and, you know, he has, he's been asking the question recently on his podcast and, and uh, in print and in this talk that he did is that what is school for? What is school for? Well, school was originally designed to create obedient, workers who follow the rules and memorize so we can get people to work in factories and have enough education to be able to show up and that. And as a society has evolved and compassion's increasing and we're really thinking about the perspective of what's the way to be of service to everyone and ourselves and to be there, we see how these skills that were once seen as soft skills, right? Compassion, opening your heart, creating a good working environment. It's like if you had brought this up, and I'm sure probably early on in your 
corporate career and starting your uh, eventually public company, I'm sure you've been through many situations where it was brought up and people would poo-poo on it. They wouldn't understand the power of it, but now we can see the impact on that and we can track it and and it's just so fascinating and I look forward to a day where that's built into the curriculum and the workplaces uh, around the world. Uh, have you had any, uh, in writing that and your book being translated into so many different languages, I'm sure you get incredible stories from all over. Any examples of, uh, of institutions, uh, companies, hospitals, or anything that come to mind right now where they've uh, made that concerted effort and how they've made that concerted effort to bring that into um, the workplace? Well, I think one that comes to mind, which is local here in Silicon Valley, is LinkedIn. Jeff Weiner, who's the CEO, uh, has made that a critical component. I've actually had a, a quote-unquote conversation on compassion uh, with Jeff in the past, but their whole ethos of the company is centered around compassion. And I don't have to tell you that they're extraordinarily successful. I think they were bought by Microsoft for $26 billion. And not only was it a good business idea, uh, but the manner in which they have grown and been successful is directly, uh, I believe, related to this uh, uh, idea that compassion is a central part of success. And it's interesting you brought this up when I first uh, returned to Stanford after being away for about four years, uh, doing some other activities, uh, I came back and I was very interested in focusing uh, on studying compassion. And I gathered a group of neuroscientists and psychologists, and this was 10 years ago, and I was basically told that uh, studying compassion uh, was a dead end and in fact, that if anyone from the academic community focused uh, their work in this area, it was um, they would never advance in academia. And what's fascinating is, and fortunately, I didn't listen to any of them. What's fascinating is that they would only come on board to work with me if I funded the research. And uh, after a year or two, two of the individuals involved changed their entire focus of their lab to focus on compassion. And we now know uh, that compassion is a critical, critical aspect of living a life of meaning and a critical aspect of our survival as a species. Many people will quote Darwin and say, you have to be ruthless to survive, but in fact, he really never said that. What he said was, it is the most sympathetic or the most compassionate, if you will, of a species or a species that will survive in the long term. And more recent work by Robert Sapolsky, who is a uh, researcher at Stanford and who's written a number of books, demonstrate that uh, the long-term survival of a species is predicated on nurturing, caring, cooperation, and affiliative behavior. And ruthlessness does allow for short-term gains, but not long-term. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the structure of our society in the West, in the United States, has been focused on this idea of uh, rugged individualism and 
especially in Wall Street and other industries, uh, that leadership has to do with being ruthless and you, you can't be kind and you have to take every advantage. And this is just a wrong notion. And you can see the repeated debacles and the greed and the selfishness that occurs that doesn't benefit uh, everyone, but only benefits a small few. And it creates disaster after disaster. And it is not a long-term solution to the survival of our humanity, uh, not only in the United States, but on a global level. Compassion can often be thought of as a very sort of ethereal thing. You know, you either have it or you don't. And part of what you learned from Ruth is that you can cultivate it inside. Could you just tell us a little bit about the exercise featured in the book and active ways that still today you cultivate compassion in you to get all the benefits, not only for yourself, but for those around you? How do you cultivate it? And could we start off by just describing the trick that you learned from Ruth? Well, I think that, yes, you can cultivate it. There's no question about that. And through the work that we've done at Stanford, we've actually created a compassion cultivation uh, training program that has now, through multiple scientific studies, demonstrated uh, its power, both in regard to improving one's physiology, but also having a positive impact on the others around them. In fact, uh, a number of spouses of individuals who've taken our program have come and thanked me for that because it's profoundly uh, impacted their home lives and their interaction with their spouses and their children, in addition to the larger effect on their the workplace, et cetera. And we know through science, and like happiness, that uh, there is certainly a genetic component, but we also know that there's a huge environmental component. And what Ruth taught me was, one, to cultivate compassion, you have to be compassionate to yourself. And this whole idea of self-compassion has now been researched extensively by Kristen Neff and others that demonstrate that the huge, huge, uh, profound, positive effect on your physiology of being self-compassionate And it's only when you're self-compassionate that then you can look at the world through a different lens. And that is a lens of, again, recognizing the suffering of others, but also uh, understanding this concept of common humanity and that everyone is suffering. And uh, it's through the continued practice of this idea, when you look out at others Frankly, the other is you. And when you have the perception that when you're interacting with another person, that that is you, it tempers all of your interactions and it tempers your tendencies or people's tendencies to have negative interactions. Uh, So I think that's a very important aspect. People ask me sometimes, what's your own personal practice? And while many years ago I used to meditate two or three hours a day, Over the last number of years, I've changed that practice, and it's actually now much more simple, but I think it comes with experience and wisdom. And as I mentioned in the book, I was asked to give a talk to students who are about to begin medical school at my alma mater. 
and not only was this uh, an extraordinary honor to be able to be the person speaking at what was called the white coat ceremony when the students uh, recite the oath of Hippocrates and receive a white coat as a symbol of their beginning the medical profession. Uh, and in that position, I wanted to give them something that was easy to remember and that could give them something easily available to focus their intention on, if you will, being the best person they could be as well as a good physician. And I reflected for a long time on my own personal journey, and I came up with 10 letters of the alphabet, which is now my practice. And I'll explain that in one second. But those 10 letters are C through L. C, compassion for self and others. D, recognizing the dignity of every person. E, practicing equanimity, this evenness of temperament where you recognize that good and bad events uh, are transitory and that having an evenness of temperament doesn't get you uh, attached or want to escape from a particular environment because everything is transitory. Oftentimes people try to avoid pain and suffering, which of course is not possible always. But oftentimes that pain and suffering gives us some of the wisest lessons we have in life that allows us to actually become a better person. And grasping for uh, accolades or being recognized often is empty and very transitory and doesn't give you anything at the end. So practicing equanimity is very important. And the other aspect is forgiveness. So often we get angry at somebody and we carry this anger and hostility with us in every interaction. And every time we think of that person, it brings up this negative emotional state. And it's not healthy for us and it doesn't take us anywhere. And by being able to forgive another person, it allows you to go forward and it releases you from this negative emotional state. G in science has shown that practicing gratitude, being thankful for your position. In fact, even being able to listen to this podcast is a recognition that those of us are actually better off already than 90% of people in the world. Remember, 50% of the people in the world live on less than $2.50 a day which is extraordinary to even process. And then humility. Uh, Many people, uh, especially uh, people in professions, carry their egos around and think they're somehow more important than other people. And uh, you have to recognize, like dignity, that we're all equal. I cannot do my job uh, without the people who sweep the floors, who empty the bedpans, uh, the nurses who take care of my patients, They are just as important in my success as I am. And this idea that we are not above another. You see, it's pity uh, when you look down and act like you're doing something for another because it's coming from a superior position or feeling of superiority. It's only when you're equal that you can be authentic, that you can best connect, and that you demonstrate your true humanity. Uh, I is for integrity and having a set of values that you live by, that bound you in your actions in the everyday world. 
J is justice or fairness or this concept that we have responsibility for those who are vulnerable to care for them. Uh, and K is kindness, simply the act of caring for another human being without any uh, motivational desire to receive any reward. And of course, all of this is contained by love, which is the greatest of human emotions. So what I do every morning in my own practice is I wake up, sit by the bread, close my eyes, breathe in and out for a few minutes, having awe at just being in this world. And then with intention, I go through every one of those letters and think about that. And that sets my intention for the day and how I interact with the world throughout the day. And I'll close by sharing a very quick story, hopefully not too long. After I uh, wrote the book and it was published, I received an email from a woman, and she said she was the spiritual director. She introduced herself as the spiritual director of the largest homeless shelter in the United States. And she said, I'm a person of faith. I was completely burned out in my job, and um, my friends had sent me a variety of scriptures, and nothing, nothing impacted me to give me the strength to continue. And she said, on my last day at work, a friend shared with me your talk, your alphabet of the heart, and that gave me the strength to return to work. Now, how profound mm -hmm. that this, and even now I feel uh, almost tearful. And so I responded to her, and a, few, a month or so later, she sent me another email, and she said, you know, we began using this as a practice within our clients at the homeless shelter, and it's been incredibly powerful. We do it every day. Then, uh, and I sent her another note and, and responded, and then she sent me another note. She said, you know, I told my friends about, uh, my best friend about this, and she has a daughter named Ginny, and Ginny was nine at the time. And she said, Ginny makes beads, and on her own, Ginny made a set of beads, wooden beads, each one representing one letter of the uh, alphabet of the heart. And on her own, she added another bead to represent the golden rule. Would you mind if we sold those as a fundraiser? And I was so moved. I said, of course, absolutely. A few months later, she sends me another note. And she says, you know, this is so profound. I made a video. And there's a YouTube video, and you can find it if you look up um, Google Compassion Bead San Antonio because it was the homeless shelter there. And it shows this little girl's hands placing these beads while this woman, the Reverend uh, uh, Ann Helmke, narrates. And she talks about how through intention and repetition, we can create or strengthen neuropathways of compassion. And it's a beautiful video. Those are now sold all over the world. And in fact, I carry a set with me in fact, I'm holding them in my hand, and I sit by my bed and actually go through each of these beads, and I actually have a set in my pocket at all times, and throughout the day, if I'm stressed or just have a moment to pause, I'll go through the 10 letters, or sometimes I'll just sit with one and think about that, and that sets my intention again. So that's the practice uh, that I use and that carries me in this world. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. 
just taking that in. Dr. Doty, thank you for being on this podcast and sharing your work and your message and your story and the lessons from Ruth. I'm going to read out uh, from your book something that uh, Ruth had shared with you that she said to you. Uh, and she said, your heart is a compass and it's your greatest gift, Jim. If you're ever lost, you just open it up and it will always steer you in the right direction. Dr. Doty, I want to thank you for coming on our podcast and sharing your work to help us open up our hearts and steer us in the right direction, especially at the beginning of this new year and with all the intentions that people have in the heart and the differences they want to make, the forgiveness they want to give to themselves. I greatly appreciate it and we're honored to have you here with us. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. And I wish you a happy new year. And Take care. Wish you a happy new year. Into the Magic Shop is where you can find intothemagicshop.com. Check out the show notes. You can find all of Dr. Doty's work, his book, Into the Magic Shop, A Neurosurgeon's Quest to Discover the Mysteries of the Brain and the Secrets of the Heart. It's on Amazon and available everywhere in 38 different languages. You're going to love this story. It's going to open up your heart and connect your heart to a brain. Thank you all so much for listening. Take care. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.